It has been a couple of very good and very full days. I have been talking, it seems, nonstop for about three days, which comes naturally to me. Um, we had a, a beautiful wedding rehearsal and uh, on Friday, a, a beautiful wedding ceremony and celebration uh, yesterday. At the reception, I saw the father of the bride literally pass a baton to his new son-in-law, symbolizing the passing of leadership and love from his daughter to his son-in-law. And that uh, father of the bride and mother of the bride are, are here uh, today with us and just want to congratulate uh, them uh, Greg and Jane, just, uh, just congratulations. So they're, they're right here. Would you guys just stand briefly? It was a, uh, a beautiful, beautiful time and celebration. I don't even want to say this, but I do need to say it, that today is also uh, Greg and Jane's last Sunday with us as they roll to Idaho on Thursday. Uh, no one else is allowed to leave. They're the last ones uh, to leave the state or the church. Um, so I didn't even want to say that, but uh, I do want you to say hello and goodbye to them uh, after the service if you didn't know that. As followers of Jesus, one of the problems that we have is we don't feel the reality and the immensity of God's love for us. One of the problems that we have as Christ followers individually is that we don't have a heart sense, we don't have a feeling of the reality and of the intensity of God's love for us. And so one of the reasons that we have this ending in Romans chapter 8, the ending of this chapter, is for us to find and discover the reality and the immensity of God's love for each of us as Christ followers. I hope you have your Bibles open or a device open to Romans 8. Let me look at and read verse 31 again. The beginning of our unit of Scripture today begins at verse 31, where Paul writes, What then shall we say in response to this, or in response to these things? And so with this question, opening our unit of Scripture for today, we need to kind of set the context here. What is he saying when he says, What shall we say in response to these things? He's referring to this great salvation that we have. If you weren't here last week, we heard about how God works all things for good to those who love him. But in Romans 8, we not only hear about this great salvation, but we hear about suffering and trials and challenges. Look back at verse 18 with me. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. You see, the Apostle Paul here is in a really good place. 
He has endured all kinds of suffering. But he's saying this suffering is not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in us in the new heavens and new earth. He has the suffering that he's experiencing in eternal perspective, and he's rejoicing. It's not even worth comparing. But the reason we have the end of Romans 8 is that you and I are often not in that place. In fact, God has put on my heart today those of us here today who might say almost the opposite of what Paul says in in verse 18 of Romans 8. The opposite of what Paul's saying would be something like this. The relationship is so painfully broken. My struggle with depression inside of myself is so severe. The smoke and the trials of of life are so real and burdensome. I, I... I can't even fathom new heavens or new earth or glory. It seems so remote and theoretical. I'm just weighed down with suffering. That's often where we find ourselves. I hope that's not where you are today, but it is often where we find ourselves. And when we are in a place like that, the reality and the immensity of God's love feels like it's far away from us even though it is not far away from us. It feels like it is far away from us, and that feeling is real. So, how do we respond to this passage, particularly if we're not in the place that the Apostle Paul is in? What I am praying for you and for me out of this text and out of this sermon is that we would be able to find in the death and resurrection of Jesus the reality and immensity of his love and it would be real and tangible. That's what it was for the Apostle Paul and that's what it can be for every Christ follower. How do we get to that place? How do we get there? How do we overcome the various sufferings and things that come into our lives? Just a few months ago, uh, several of us here today traveled to Indianapolis for a conference, a Gospel Coalition conference. And one of the people that was scheduled to speak to us, a guy named Tim Keller, who's on the screen here, and this is just a, a, a photo of him speaking to us in Indianapolis back on May 20th from his apartment in New York City. He wasn't with us on that day because he has been enduring pancreatic cancer. And if you've known anyone with pancreatic cancer, you have probably not known them for very long. And yet, he is ministering to church leaders who are in Minneapolis. Or, excuse me, in, I normally go to Minneapolis. Where were we? Indianapolis. Yeah, similar, right? Polis. Yeah, yeah, something like that. He's ministering to us. In the midst of suffering through pancreatic cancer, he's not only ministering to us, church leaders in Indianapolis, but he continues to write. And he writes not just for the church. He's one of the few 
Christian leaders that actually publishes things in things like the New York Times and Washington Post and, and periodicals like The Atlantic. And he wrote this in The Atlantic, a secular thing. You would not expect a gospel person to be writing in this publication. He writes this about his pancreatic cancer. He says, one of the first things I learned was that religious faith, what he means is, is gospel faith, but he, he, he's writing in this secular publication, so he's put it that, in that language for secularists, for postmoderns. One of the first things I learned with pancreatic cancer was that religious faith does not automatically provide solace in times of crisis. A belief in God in an afterlife does not become spontaneously comforting and existentially strengthening. What Keller is saying is, I wasn't in the place that Paul's in in Romans 8. But I had to get there. And we need to get there. And this sermon, in this passage, in this, this text of Scripture, the end of Romans 8, is here to help us to get to the place that the Apostle Paul is at. Where his present sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in, in him. He has his sufferings in perspective, and they are actually drawing him closer to God. So how does this happen? Well, the first thing I want to say, I've got a total of five points this morning. And the first one is that our feelings are real, but they are not necessarily trustworthy. Our feelings are real, but they're not necessarily trustworthy. They're not necessarily right. And so for many of us, who are experiencing suffering, whether it's pancreatic cancer, whether it's something else, it's being displaced, it's not being in life where I intended to be. We might feel like God is not with us. There's no solace. We, we might feel like the reality and immensity of his love is something very far from me, but that is not actually true. So we have to come to terms with our own feelings. In their book, Entangling Emotions, uh, the authors Groves and Smith write this. They, they say there, there are good negative emotions as well as bad, and bad positive emotions as well as good. And just at the beginning of the sentence here, what they're saying is, you know, there, there are good negative emotions. A negative emotion may be being angry, anger. That anger can be good. You know, the proverbial... A big kid on the playground that's beating up on the small kid on the playground, and, and you or I walk into that setting, and we have an anger toward that big kid oppressing the little kid. There's something good about that negative emotion. This is, this is what they're saying in the beginning of the sentence, but it's what they say next is, is why I have this up here. It is imperative that we figure out what is going on before working to shut down or amplify the feelings flowing from our hearts. What's going on? And what I'm trying to say, as I have been praying over and, and meditating on this passage this week, is I think many of us have this feeling in our hearts when we're suffering that God is far from us. The immensity and reality of his love is far from us. That's how we feel, but we need to undo that feeling because he is with us. 
That's what the end of Romans 8 is all about. That he is not only with you, but that he loves you in this tangible, concrete, real way that is immense and more immense than any other kind of love that you've seen or experienced. So that is the subject of this passage in this sermon. It is really God's love for the Christ follower. And my aim today is, is, is for you to, to feel it and sense it. And then more than that, to have a paradigm to rediscover it. To recognize that your feelings, although they're real, may be wrong. Do you get that? And we, does anyone get that? Bunch of white people, all quiet. Our feelings are real, but, but they can be wrong. And what can transform this feeling that God seems so far and his love seems distant and not real? How about the word of God in the end of Romans 8? Maybe that is what God would have to transform your feeling about his love for you. So the subject of this passage and of this sermon is God's love for the Christ follower. Look with me. Let's jump our eyes down to verse 35. I'm just wanting to show you what the subject of this unit of Scripture is. So let's jump to verse 35. It says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? That little phrase, the love of Christ, this is repeated three times in different ways. This is the subject of this unit of Scripture. The love of Christ for the believer. This isn't our love for Christ, but it is the love of Christ for the Christ follower, for the believer. I could spend a lot of time on this, but let me just very briefly say, this is a special kind of God's love we read about in the end of Romans 8, for the chosen ones, or as the translation that Curtis read says, the elect, for those who are in the family of God and all are invited and welcome, but there is a special kind of love for us, and that's what this is about. That is those who know and are part of Christ's family. Does God love the whole world? You might say, yes. John 3.16, for God loves the cosmos. But there is a special, familial, intimate kind of love for the children of God. And it's real and it's immense. And that's what the end of Romans 8 is about. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? This love that he has for individual Christ followers, verse 35, shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword. No, no, we might feel like these things separate us. But Romans 8, the end of Romans 8 is here to tell us, no, they don't separate us. Now, if you've been in the church a long time, you're probably familiar with this passage. So one of the things I'm praying and want to do right now is for this to fall fresh on you, what this is saying. I'm praying that the immensity and the reality of God's love would fall fresh on you as a Christ follower now. Look at what he says. You know, so the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Answer, nothing, no one. And then he mentions trouble and hardship. 
He mentions persecution. Again, we're familiar with this verse and we can just roll right by it. He mentions famine. Famine. We just got back from Newport Beach a couple weeks ago, and the ships trying to get into the port, San Pedro, are backed up to Newport Beach, Orange County. We've been going there for 25 years, never seen a container ship offshore in Newport Beach. They're offshore right now. So our global supply chain is interrupted, right? Have you heard this on the news? You've seen this in the store a little bit? But even with that, Rayleigh's, Safeway, Bel Air is full of food. We live in the richest and most powerful country in the world. Do you see what Romans 8 is saying? Do you see what the word famine is? Can you feel famine today? It's hard to feel that. Have you, has anybody here, raise your hands, have you traveled to the developing world and seen famine? Some of you have. Where there's no Rayleigh's. There's no food. And people are starving literally to death. Famine. Romans 8 is saying that that kind of hardship cannot separate you from the reality, the immensity of God's love. That is quite a statement. Famine. We are in Disneyland here, folks, in America. We are so far from famine. Well, how about nakedness? Have you traveled to the developing world and see people whose dignity is is low in part because they don't have clothing? God's word is saying that kind of indignity will not separate you from the reality and the immensity of God's love. We can just blow through this sentence. We know this chapter. God is wanting to make his immense, unbelievable, concrete, real love present to you and to me. And he has given us his word in Romans 8 to accomplish this. The subject of this passage in this sermon is God's love for the Christ follower. I didn't even get to the other two places where we see it. Back to what I was trying to say in verse 35, we have this phrase, the love of Christ. And then if we jump down to verse 37, let me read it. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. There it is a second time. Through Christ who loved us. The subject of the passage is that Christ loves us, his people, his children. Verse 39, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, the love of God the Father that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is the subject of this unit of Scripture mentioned three times, the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
his love. So we need, as human beings, tangible expressions of love. And, and I've been blessed um, seeing expressions of love just in the, in the last couple days and, and even the last couple months as I've been doing premarital counseling with Jesse and Carly, just seeing this, this couple that just loves each other. You know, you're around that young. Uh, there, there's, there's a sense in which it's, it's, it's puppy love, but there's another sense in which their love is not a puppy love because Christ is at the center of their love for each other. And it's just been awesome to see that love and, and, and know it. And, and God gives us concrete examples in our lives of seeing love. But it is sometimes difficult for us to feel and know his love in concrete ways. And we're going to get in a moment to to concrete way that he shows us his love. But I'm just kind of giving us some examples of of love that that we witness and see in in this life. I had an example this summer. I read a biography uh, earlier this summer on George Washington. And I learned a lot about George Washington. I didn't know that much about him. And one of the things that stuck with me from this biography was George Washington's love for the Indian chiefs. He partied with those guys. I hope it was a God-honoring party. I'm not sure. But he partied with these chiefs. I I didn't know that. In the summer of 1790, Washington hosted native chief McGilvery. Most of them didn't have names. It sounded like that, but this guy did, this this Indian chief. He hosted him and 26 chiefs for several weeks of official dinners, parades, and diplomatic ceremonies more lavish than any European delegation experienced. The French came over. British, they didn't come over, right? We're, 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 we're on those guys. So the, the French came over, others came over, there were parties. The biggest parties, the biggest celebration for Washington were with the Indian chiefs. He, he embraced them, they, they, he did their, you know, they all came to Mount Vernon and, and they partied, they drank port, they smoked tobacco. He embraced them in arms, and he he loved them. One of the chiefs, Cherokee chief, in a letter to Washington, wrote this, and I love, he addresses him as brother. I mean, just think of the early days of our country. An Indian chief going to Mount Vernon, hanging with the president, writes him a letter, brother. Brother. We give up to our white brothers all the land we could anyhow spare and won't have but little left. And we hope you won't let any people take any more from us without our consent. We are neither birds nor fish. We can neither fly in the air nor live underwater. We are made by the same hand and in the same shape as yourselves. He wrote this letter And Washington had a policy to care and to love for these guys. I wasn't really aware of his policy. He had a policy to respect them, 
to love them. This is part of his policy, some treaty, I don't remember the name of it, just put GW's policy here. Indians, being the prior occupants, possess the right of the soil. To dispossess them would be a gross violation of the fundamental laws of nature and of that distributive justice which is the glory of a nation. That was the heart of George Washington. We all know that heart didn't prevail. It wasn't long after that, that a generation later, the Indians were not partying with the president. And they were, by and large, dispossessed. This is an illustration of love. We see love around us. I've seen it in recent days. I saw it in this brotherhood as I read this biography. But we have a demonstration of love in Romans chapter 8 that is better, more real, more concrete than any other kind of love. The kind of love between a husband and wife, the kind of love between a father and a child. We have a common, a, a, a concrete example to anchor our feeling that we ought to have as Christ followers of the immensity and the beauty and the reality of his love. What is that event that makes God's love real to you and to me? Look at verse 32. He who did not spare his own son. God the Father who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all. The event wasn't a party. It wasn't a wedding. It was the death of the Son of God. And we, I've seen love in, in all these different ways in my reading this summer and in this couple and in their friends in the last couple days. But in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit and the Apostle Paul is wanting to open our eyes to the love of of God the Father, shown through Christ to his followers. He did not spare his own son. Verse 32 says, there's, allusion here, there's an allusion here, I believe, to Genesis 22. That chapter is where Abraham goes to surrender his son. But in the last moment, you know the story, most of you. Does Abraham lose his son? He doesn't. God provides a lamb. But God the Father lost his son. He left eternity past. He suffered with a crown of thorns. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. This is the kind of love. This is the expression. This is the tangible, concrete reality that anchors the kind of feeling that the Apostle Paul has at the end of Romans 8 that you and I can have also as Christ followers. It can be more real than the love of the brotherhood than George Washington and the Indian chiefs partying at Mount Vernon. It can be more real than the love between a newly married couple. It's more real than those couple's friends loving them. This is the most supreme example of love. This is how Paul is able to say these astonishing things about famine 
about nakedness because of the immensity and the reality of God's love. So the event is the death of Christ. The Father gave him up for us all. Back to 32, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? One day, the new heavens and new earth, everything will be made right. He's going to give us everything, new bodies. He's going to give us forests that don't burn. Or if they burn, they will burn rightly. Burn the way they should burn. and Provide health and rejuvenation. I don't really know whether we're going to have fire in heaven or not. I don't know. You can talk to somebody else. I mean, it's going to be good if we have fire in heaven. It's not going to displace anybody. It's not going to take away their homes or their children or their horses or their, their piglets running around that they love so much. It's not going to do that if we have fire in heaven. God's love is rooted in the greatest event in all of history. And he wants us to feel it in Romans 8. It's Christ Jesus who died more than that, who has been raised to life. So it's the death and resurrection. He's at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. He's praying for you, for me, for us, his children. Now, this is the anchor. This is the reality so that we can feel his love. God's love is rooted in the greatest event in all of history. We are called to feel that love and to understand it and to know it. One of the greatest uh, descriptions I've read recently about that love, again, is from my, one of my heroes, uh, Tim Keller. He writes this. He says, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us but keeps us in denial about our flaws. That's not real love. Occasionally you'll see parents who love their kids with sentimentality, not with real love. You, we've all seen parents that, that they can't see their kids' weaknesses. It couldn't have been my boy or my girl. There's a degree to where that's healthy, but it's mostly not good. Love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. It doesn't work just for somebody who doesn't love me to point out my sins and weaknesses. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are his children, who we are and all of our faults and weaknesses, and yet it's also radical, unconditional commitment to us. This, is, this love is, is what we rehearse every Sunday as we do confession. Yeah, we're, we're broken, we're sinners, forgive us, and then we remind ourselves, the person who's leading confession reminds us that he, that he loves us and that he forgives us. It's both. He's going to change us from our weaknesses and our sins and yet he loves us more than we would ever know. This is the greatest love in the universe. It's tangibly expressed. It was tangibly expressed in the death, in the giving up of, his, of the Father's one and only Son. It was a long time ago. We don't have a 1080p recording for you to watch of it. 
on, on your screen. He has given us the Word of God, the testimony of those who saw it and who wrote the Gospels, and from the Apostle Paul and the Holy Spirit, this is how he chose to communicate that event and his love to us. His love is rooted in the greatest event in all of history. Well, I would love to preach on every word in this verse, but let's, let's move on to verse, to, in this unit of Scripture, but let's move on to verses 38 and 39 in my fourth point here. Let me read 38 and 39. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is comprehensive. So death is coming. It's coming. It's coming for Tim Keller. I don't know when, but it's coming. That death won't separate you, Tim Keller. Pancreatic cancer won't separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What about life? Man, life is hard. It won't separate you. Well, how about the demonic realm? Can that? No. The demonic realm cannot separate you, Christ follower, child of God, from the love of God in Christ Jesus. What about what's going on now? What about the future? Okay, let's just throw in any power. The governor, whatever power, can it separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Say no. No. It can't. Neither height nor depth. And then this last phrase is important. Nor anything else in all creation. This last phrase is really important. Why is it important? It's important because you and I are sinful people. And we tend to think of ourselves as special and different than everyone else. And even in our sin, our pride kind of shows up. And so we can think, you know, God can't love me that way. Because, you know, back then, I did this terrible thing. There is no way that he could love me because of this thing that I did. Or maybe it's this thing that was done to you. And you feel like damaged goods. We have this ability, no matter what we have experienced or haven't experienced, to somehow think that God can't love me that much. And so Paul, at the end of, he's covered every category, right, in these verses. But he throws in, nor anything else in all creation. He deals with that human tendency of, yeah, but, yeah, but. So that phrase is important. Those of you here today who in recent days have not been experiencing the feeling of the reality of the immensity of God's love for you, if it's because of something you did or something that was done to you, it's covered. It's covered here. Forget the former things. Do not dwell on the past. He loves you. He loves me. This is powerful, powerful stuff in Romans 8 at the end. 
No matter what terrible thing you have done or has been done to you, it does not separate you from his love. Back briefly to my friend, who I don't know, but love very much, Tim Keller. In the same article, written to the secular world, he writes this. As death, the last enemy, became real to my heart, pancreatic cancer, I realized that my beliefs would have to become just as real to my heart or I wouldn't be able to get through the day. Theoretical ideas about God's love and the future resurrection had to become life-gripping truths or be discarded as useless. My prayer for you and me is that today, the end of Romans 8, now and in the future when you read it and meditate, it would be a life-gripping truth. Jesus really died for you. And he loves you. And there is no greater love. Keller goes on. And it's sweet. I recommend reading this article. He says, uh, to our surprise, uh, his wife Kathy, to our surprise and encouragement, Kathy and I have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into a heaven, the more we are able to. To enjoy it. He goes on in the article as he's suffering with pancreatic cancer and going to chemo and doing all this stuff. How beautiful his times are with his wife and how much they are enjoying life in the midst of pancreatic cancer. Sounds like somebody I know, the Apostle Paul, who was suffering and yet could describe God's love the way that he does. Paul had massive suffering. Doug Moo uh, comments on this, this last phrase that I'm emphasizing here in this last unit here. Paul intends this last reference as a catch-all, embracing anything that one might think has been omitted from the previous list. There is nothing, no matter what you've done, no matter what has been done to you, no matter what you've experienced or not experienced or wished your life had been about, no matter what, none of that can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. My prayer for you and for me is that we would meditate on the end of Romans 8 often and then, going back to the beginning of the sermon, those feelings that we might have that are real but are wrong would go away and that we would know the immensity and the reality of God's love that was shown by the Father actually giving up His Son. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You for bringing us together today into this place. We thank you for your word and how the Spirit inspired it to actually help us and grow us and make us like our Lord. Help us to find in the death and resurrection of Jesus the reality and immensity of his love. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down 
his life for his friends. God, we are thankful that we are your friends, your children. Help us to know and feel that love. In Jesus' name.